Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. Be sure to watch our services online each Sunday at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. by visiting remembrancecommunity.org forward slash livestream. I hope you enjoy today's message. It's a privilege to come this morning and to be part of this series, Fresh Glimpses of Jesus. As one who grew up in Sunday school, I heard many stories uh, from both the Hebrew scriptures and from the New Testament, certainly the life of Jesus. Those are the days of flannel graph when you put up pictures on a board and it would stay there. It was sort of uh, the precursor to PowerPoint. And I still remember even when I was young of not understanding some of the stories and how they fit into this overall picture of Jesus that people kept telling me about. And so I'm glad that uh, Kenny has decided to revisit some of the passages uh, that in at least in my understanding, would be those ones where you read it and you kind of go, huh? Right? It doesn't fit the, the idea we have about who Jesus is. And the story I'd like to take this morning is out of Mark chapter 11. Uh, you remember Palm Sunday. It was the Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion. And he rides into Jerusalem and people are shouting, Hosanna, which was a word for save now. Like, maybe this is it. Finally, we'll get out from underneath Rome and putting the palm branches down and so excited, it seemed. And Mark is the only one that records what Jesus did after the entry. And that's found in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Sounds pretty anticlimactic, doesn't it? Huge parade, lots of excitement, people calling him the son of David, uh, asking to save now, which is actually a word that's used in Psalm 118, one of the Psalms of Ascent that they would sing every year going into Jerusalem. And he goes from that kind of an entry and then proceeds to go up the Mount of Olives to stay in the little village of Bethany, which is the home to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Seemed to be his place to be whenever he was in the area of Jerusalem. Good friends, it certainly seems. So that's Sunday night. Big parade, as it were, big entry. Then a quiet stroll through the temple area and then goes out to Bethany to spend the night. So that brings us to Monday. Monday morning specifically. And Mark leads into the story that we're going to spend most of our time in uh, with what seems like a random event, but nothing in the life of Jesus is really ever random. And it begins in verse 12. He says, on the following day, which would have been Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, on first reading this, again, this is kind of the huh moment for us. Because is it that he's so tired? Is it that, because he knows this is the last entry into Jerusalem, he knows that his crucifixion is coming, where he's going to take our place on the cross. This is with his 
uh, permission of his father and himself and the Holy Spirit, right? They all decided uh, before the world was all put together that this is how God would redeem humans. And yet we know from his prayer in the garden later in the week that it was a stressful time. Is that what's going on here? Well, this is where it's helpful to have some background. And the first is actually horticultural background. And I've not only looked on the usual uh, computer sites, but talked to those who are in agriculture. And this is the case because this would have been early April. And in early April, the fig tree would have been in bloom. And so it's got the leaves. But as Mark points out, it's not yet the season for figs, for the figs themselves. What most of us don't know, but the first readers of the gospel story would have known, is that because it was not yet the time for figs, th there will be no figs. But what first appears once the leaves are there is a crop of takhsh, T-A-Q-S-H, if you want to look it up. Um, and they're not really figs. They're about the size of almonds, but peasants would eat them because there's at least some nutrition in it. And uh, it allowed them to at least chew and you know have some kind of uh, nutritional value. Uh, but they were not the figs, uh, but they are the forerunners of the real figs. And by that, I mean, if the taksh are not there, there will be no figs. And so as Jesus comes to this tree and Mark is clear to point out, it's not yet the time of figs. What this is, is a hopelessly fruitless fig tree. That this is a tree that will not produce the figs it was created to produce. Now, a little background on the whole imagery of figs. So, I mean, what does that have to do with it? Well, it's a well-known imagery for those who were in Israel, who are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, the first part of it, we read, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. That's God saying that. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. God says, I saw the potential. The, the fruit could be there. There were indications that this, this group of people would be a fruitful people. And earlier in Jesus' ministry, he tells a parable that used the fig tree as the center of the story. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, and he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well, and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so having already told that story, Jesus now comes to a real fig tree and says, there's no fruit and there will never be fruit. And therefore we're done with you. So the cursing of this hopelessly fruitless fig tree is now what sets up what happens next. And that's when Jesus goes back into the temple. If you pick it up in verse 15 of Mark 11, and they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple again 
and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Why? Again, what, what's gotten into him? Is it the stress? He curses a fig tree for not having figs, even though it's not the season for figs. Then he goes into the temple area and begins to drive out those who are selling sacrifices and exchanging money for offerings. There was only a certain kind of coin that would be accepted. The law itself allowed for the fact that if you lived so far away that what animal sacrifice you bring might get injured on the way because you had to bring a perfect sacrifice, that you could just come, bring the money, buy a sacrifice, offer it. And he also stood in the way of those who were wanting to use the temple area for a shortcut. So what's going on here? Well, fortunately, Jesus tells the people exactly why he did it. But once again, we have to look carefully at what he says to understand what he's doing. But the very first reason, because he gives us two reasons for why he just did what he did. The first reason is that God is not a tribal deity. You say, where do you get that? <clears throat> well, look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, <clears throat> excuse me, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? And in fact, it is written. Jesus isn't just using some kind of offhanded allusion. It's found in Isaiah 56. And we're going to be reading a lot from the Hebrew scriptures. The upside of this being on video is that you can actually pause if you want to read back through the text before proceeding with the sermon, or you can go back later and uh, pick these up. But Isaiah chapter 56, let's pick up it, pick it up in verse 6. And the foreigners, that means non-Jews, who join themselves to Yahweh, remember that's the covenant name for God, the one who is to his people everything that he is, the promise-making, promise-keeping God, so those foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Adonai Yahweh. Adonai is that name for God as, as the Lord over all. So Adonai Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Do you hear what Jesus is saying when he gives the first reason? When he quotes from Isaiah 56, he's saying, God has always intended for his worshipers to be more than just the people of Israel. God's intention was always that those who were non-Israel would also come into a relationship with Yahweh and would know his love and his grace and his mercy. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, because this is found all over the Old Testament, I'm just going to give you a few examples, but in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the focus is on all humanity, not just the Jews because they don't exist yet. But then when God chooses to enter into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then over in Psalm 67, and by the way, in Psalm 67, you'll notice that the psalmist uses the name Elohim, which means the strong God or the powerful God. But it is also the, the name that is most often used in describing God's relationship to all men, not just Israel, um, all nations and, and his creation. Because even the nations around Israel referred to God as Elohim. So listen to what it says in Psalm 67, verse 1. May Elohim be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Now, if you recognize that phrase, it comes from the blessing of Aaron to the people of Israel. And the psalmist here uses it to say God wants to shine his face on all peoples. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O Elohim. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. And Selah is just a musical notation, probably means we're going to do a little musical interlude here so you can think about what's just been said. Because once again, he starts with the blessing of Aaron and says, actually, this blessing is not just for Israel. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O Elohim. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. Elohim, our Elohim, shall bless us. Elohim shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And then a little later in the Hebrew Scriptures, Solomon has a prayer as he dedicates the first temple. And he begins his prayer this way. Then Solomon said, O Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, there is no Elohim like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. That's that chesed, that covenant love that says, I will always love you to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And then a little further down in verse 52, or excuse me, 32, he says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, all those phrases are used in the way that God has related to Israel and its history. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, that's the dedication of that first temple. It was eventually destroyed when Israel went into captivity. It got rebuilt. But the temple was a place where all nations would gather and come to know Yahweh, the, the covenant God. And I could go on and on from the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, but that gives you an idea of what would have been in the background as we talk about a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, I want to show you three floor plans. The first is the tabernacle, which was God's portable house when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. 
and then the floor plan for the temple that Solomon built, and then finally the floor plan for the temple that Herod had built, and that would have been the temple that Jesus was standing outside of as he was turning over the tables and so on. So in the first slide, the temple floor plan looked like this. It started outside with the altar on which the sacrifice would be made, then a laver or laver to clean hands and clean the sacrifice, etc. Then there was the holy place where the blood was sprinkled and the priests would take that in there. And then the most holy place, which we know from the Old Testament law, only once a year, the high priest would go in first after making a sacrifice for his own sin, and then he would atone for all the sins of Israel. And there was a curtain between those two, between the holy place and the most holy. And in there was the tabernacle. Well, Solomon's temple floor plan looked a little different. Some of the basic structures are there, certainly. You have uh, a basin, uh, you have the altar, you have the holy place, and you have the most holy place. There were storerooms that had been added. It was certainly bigger than the tabernacle, but basically the same structure. But then you get to the floor plan for Solomon's, I mean, for Herod's temple. And unfortunately, that's turned a little different direction than the first two. But you'll see there that out on the outskirts is the temple courtyard and the Gentiles court. This is where those who are non-Israel, that's as close as they could get to the temple. And then you have the court of women, which is a little closer than the Gentiles, but not by a lot. And then you have the court of Israel, which being interpreted means the court of men. Men could get in much closer to where the altar is and the basin, because they're still there. And then you have the court of priests. So closest to the sacrifices and the worship were the priests, which at some level makes sense. And then you have the holy place and the most holy. But look at these additions from the tabernacle to Solomon. They're Pretty much the same, except Solomon's temple is bigger. But once you get to Herod's temple, what has happened is that they have literally built barriers for Gentiles to stay their distance, for women to stay at their distance, and even the men cannot actually be there and, and be a part of it as they would have been with the tabernacle, where there weren't all these other accoutrements that would go with it. And do you think God intended to marginalize women and Gentiles when it comes to worship? Not if you read scripture. God has always wanted men and women of all nations to be his worshipers. Let me read from Leviticus 22. You know, Leviticus, that book that when you're reading through the Bible in a year, you get slogged down usually in Leviticus because of all the laws. But in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 17, it says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when anyone of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel, sojourners is that term for Gentiles who began to uh, hang around with Israel, uh, even during their wanderings, they were beginning to collect them um, and settled in the land with them. Those were those who become worshipers of Yahweh. He said, when anyone of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel present a burnt offering. So you hear who gets to also bring burnt offerings? It's not only the people of Israel, it is the sojourners, those who have come to acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God. 
When they present a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to Yahweh, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish or the bulls or the sheep or the goats. So basically everybody brings the same sacrifice, regardless of whether they're Israeli or non-Israeli. And that's in Leviticus. That's in the law as God is saying, here's how worship ought to take place. And then listen to Numbers, Numbers chapter 9, verse 14. And if a stranger sojourns among you, and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. Right? No division between those who were born into this, as it were, and those who were newly come to this, coming to an understanding of who Yahweh is and, and how he relates to his people. So the first reason that Jesus gives for overturning the temples, the temple tables and the sacrifices and stopping people from tramping through the temple mount, is that he's not just a local deity. He's the God of all nations. And Israel had allowed these barriers, physical, literal barriers, to be set up, to create divisions, to create spaces. The second reason and the reason we don't usually see that there are two reasons is he uses two verses for one quote, it seems. But the second reason is the true God is a God of justice and mercy. I just want to point out again that being in the right place does not automatically mean being in the right. right? And for instance, in our cases, we bring it up to the 21st century. Being in church, which is the right place to be, does not automatically mean that you're in the right. right? There could be other things going on. And why do I say that? Because if you look at the second half of Mark eleven seventeen. 17, he gives the second reason here, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers, right? It was meant to be a house of prayer for all people. That's out of Isaiah. But you've turned it into a den of robbers. That's out of Jeremiah 7. So let me read Jeremiah 7, verses 1 to 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, stand in the gate of Yahweh's house, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the, one, the, the covenant God of armies, basically, the Elohim of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive, word, these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. See, if they say it three times, it must make it so. In other words, it's just, it becomes empty words. We're, we're in the right place. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly, now listen to this, execute justice one with another. If you do not oppress the sojourner, right? That's the other, the person who is not part of our tribe, part of our people group, as it were. The sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Let me paint that picture in case you didn't pick it up. He's saying you're out there 
stealing, murdering, committing adultery, swearing falsely, making offerings to false gods, chasing after those gods, and then coming back to the temple in worship, in a place called by God's name and saying, we're delivered, we're safe here. And then leave that worship service, as it were, and continue to do exactly the same thing. Now, here's where the quote comes from in verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And what is a den of robbers for, right? It's the it's the safe place. For those of you who remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, right? The hole in the wall gang. It, it's a place to go and count their loot and figure they're safe, only to then go out of their safe place to rob some more. And God's painting this picture that these people were coming to worship and feeling safe there only to turn around and do exactly the same thing and then come back to the temple and feel like I'm safe. He says, behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. In other words, you might think you're hiding. You might think nobody else knows. I know, I see, it breaks my heart. I never intended worship to be a place to just come and pretend like everything's okay. It's meant to be a place where you come and acknowledge your own failings and my provision. But that's not what was happening. And how do we know this? Look at the response of the Jewish leaders in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. That's the end of Monday. See, they were seeking a way to destroy him. They got it. They got the imagery. They could tell this was a threat to them because he was calling them on their hypocrisy. I remember so many sermons where it seemed like the issue was the money. They weren't supposed to be bringing money. But I got to say, after looking at the horticultural background, the cursing of the fig tree that leads right into this, the, the fruitlessness of that tree and the fruitlessness of Israel, as Jesus had talked about it earlier in his ministry and as we've seen, and then he brings together these two quotes that say, I meant this worship of me to be a worldwide experience, not just for you, not just to keep it for yourselves, but to invite any and all of the others who are out there to be part of this. Which brings us to the words, so what? I mean, what do we do with this? Because I think we need to, to look for a response. And so I'm going to suggest some things. Uh, but again, if, if in looking at these passages uh, after the sermon's over and maybe talking it over with friends, you come to some other application, something you need to do about this, please go with that. But in my so what's, the first one was the true God is not a tribal deity. God's not an American God. He's not an Israeli God. He's not an Iranian God. He's not a God of any of the stands. Um, he's the God of the nations. And that's been true from the very beginning. Even as the nations began to develop out of Adam and Eve, God was still there for them. Now, he did uniquely call Israel to be his people, but in order that they be a blessing to all the other nations around them. In Luke chapter 24, as Jesus is about to uh, go back to heaven, he's walking on the way to Emmaus. He says, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Remember, he was talking to the two men. He told them, this is what's written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. 
and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. We don't get to decide who can have a relationship with God and who can't. It's not our call. We're to go into all the world. And I think in America in particular, God has brought all the world to us. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that anyone is saved. It's not limited to those with certain ethnic backgrounds or certain economic backgrounds. It is about God's grace to all people. And some respond. In that great throne room scene that we see in Revelation chapter 7, it says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I hope you've been underlining things like every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages. It's been throughout these passages that we've used. Those whom God saves through Jesus will declare him king of all people. The second so what for me is that the true God is a God of justice and mercy. Again, being in the right place doesn't automatically mean we're in the right. His own illustration out of Jeremiah was you, you do all these things out there and then you come in and somehow say, now I'm okay. And then just go out and do the exact same thing. That's the main thrust of what he's been saying when he's clearing the temple. It, it isn't about the money. It's about marginalizing those for whom Christ would die leaving them on the outside, not caring for them as those who were created in the image of God and inviting them into that relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, Therefore Yahweh waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is an Elohim of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And then the third, so what for me, implication wise, and you notice I haven't told you exactly what to do with this. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will help you to discover ways that in your own life, maybe things that need to change so that what you are outside of the worship experience is what you are in the worship experience, that there be a congruence and, and integration between those things. But the third one is the true God doesn't change, right? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So the things that were true of God before the cross are true of God after the cross. God has always been consistent to his character. Even though he dealt with different people in different ways, it, it comes grows out of that same character of who he is. He changes not. And therefore, when he calls Israel who at that time had the scriptures and had years of history with God, when he says things to them, we, I think, can fairly easily apply them to ourselves now, this side of the cross. And say, are there ways that I sort of play this game of being somebody else outside of those times of worship and then just going along with my crowd when I'm in worship? Uh, I used to say I would live it up on the weekend and then try and live it down on Sunday. Right? My life wasn't consistent. And, and I will never be perfect. And I will never be totally consistent. 
but God's done a work over the years of trying to bring together all of my life so that it reflects his character. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this is one of those stories where Jesus seems out of character, and yet when we look at the Hebrew scriptures that he quoted as he was turning over these tables and explaining to the people what he had done and why he had done it, it is consistent. It's consistent with your heartbeat for all people. It's consistent with a call to the people who are already in relationship with you to live in a way that reflects your character, to be more consistent about the choices we make and the words that we use and the way that we treat people. So, Father, would you increase our heart for those who are different from us? And would you help those of us who know you follow you more closely so that wherever we are, our life reflects the image of Jesus Christ? I pray these things in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. You can find all our sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.